Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all on this lovely end of the summer road. All we have got to look forward to now is rain and dark nights and cold and the heating and all that, colds and coughs. No, we've got a couple of weeks left, I'm sure. We've got a church barbecue in our house in a couple of weeks. We'd better be sunny for that anyway. Okay, so today we're continuing with our series on the parables of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at the parable of the wedding feast. So we're going to bring some verses up, which are found in Matthew 22 and verses 1 to 14. So we'll bring them up on the screen and then we'll start to read them together. Okay, buckle your seatbelts. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Sorry, vegetarians. Come to the banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field and another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the, so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. And so the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes or a wedding garment, and he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, why on earth did I pick this parable to speak on? (laughs) As Aldo said last week. So as we know, Jesus uses parables as illustrations to illustrate and help his listeners that would have been around him at that time, the Jewish leaders, Joe Bloggs, and his disciples and followers. And so there would have been a sort of mixed audience here when Jesus was telling this parable. And so we're going to unpack it a little bit at a time. So Jesus is using this story to bring to the attention of his listeners the urgency of the time or the hour. As not long after this, Jesus would have been taken away to be crucified. Is this working? I'm not sure if it's. Am I pressing the right button? Maybe you could just move them along for me, please. Lovely. Thank you very much. And so just shortly after he was telling this illustration or parable or story to his audience, he was taken away to be crucified. And so parts of this parable here are in a historical context. They're in a present context when Jesus was there walking the earth, talking to the people around him, and a futuristic context. And so in the sort of present historical context, many scholars have interpreted the first invitation to that of the Jewish people people that 
the sort of nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews, the Hebrews. And being, like, being invited to come to God to the wedding to celebrate what was going to be the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus, his son. And as we know that throughout history, um, the Jewish people sort of rejected God time and time again. And in the present context, it talks again about the Jewish leaders who were then still rejecting who Jesus was claiming to be. And as we know, they were the ones who were setting and plotting to get him killed. And in verse 5 and 6, it says, The guests ignored him, and they went about their business, and others seized his messengers and killed them. And as we look in the Old Testament, we see time and time again, God sending forerunners to Jesus, what we would know as the prophets. And as we know, they were killed Um, by, again, a lot of these Jewish leaders because they wouldn't accept that God was sending these forerunners to proclaim that a Messiah was about to come to earth to sort of rescue them. And so when we think of the prophets that were killed in the Old Testament, but also John the Baptist, who had recently been killed by the sort of Jewish leaders. And this is also in the context of the present, in that God's invitation isn't just for the nation of Israel, but for everyone everywhere. And as we know, Jerusalem had a history of rejecting God's prophets and would reject the Messiah, just as it had rejected its forerunners in the past and during this more present time. And the verses here refers to God's invitation was for everyone, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, which includes each and every one of us. And in verse 10, it says, So the servants brought in everyone they could find. And part of this parable has a futuristic sort of context as well. But if people do not respond to the invitation of knowing God through the work of his son Jesus on the cross, which is a bit like what the wedding clothes or the garment represents, because it says that a man had come into the wedding feast, but he wasn't wearing the proper attire of the the garment or the the wedding clothes and um, he was thrown out but when we look at this parable we sometimes think oh gosh that's really harsh why would a loving God do this but when we understand a little bit more about the context and the sort of historical aspect of it and its consequences we can begin to understand it more clearly So the wedding garment, in a way, was a bit like the forerunning of like what Jesus was going to be doing on the cross for us. It is the provision of that covering that he took all of our wrongs, every single human being's wrongs, what the Bible calls sin, upon himself so that we can come into a relationship with God, have the things that we've done wrong forgiven, and sort of be looking forward to an eternity in heaven with him and to receive God's grace, love, and mercy through Jesus, not because of our own good deeds, not because of we are good or we are self-righteous, because that is, as we know, not how we get into heaven, because the Bible says even our good deeds are a bit like filthy rags, and um, so it's all about Jesus. It's all about casting the eyes of the people onto Jesus and the work that he would do for us. And so in this parable, we see parts of the past and the historical context. We see parts of the present that was going on at the time where Jesus was. And we see the futuristic elements of it as well. And in verse 7, where it talks about the destruction of the city of the people who rejected God, a lot of commentators say that it refers to possibly the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So about 40 years after Jesus was saved, 
relaying this story to his listeners, uh, the Jews revolted against Roman control. And three years later, Titus, son of the emperor Vespasian, I wonder if that's where Vespa came from, you know, the little Italian motorbikes? Um, The emperor Vespasian was sent to crush the rebellion and Jerusalem was burned to the ground and over 600,000 Jews were killed under Titus's onslaught. And so some scholars would refer to those verses sort of being like a prophetic thing about um, this that happened in history. And so this parable, though, to me and to us, is primarily about God's invitation, isn't it? It's about a loving God who wants relationship with every human being that ends up on this planet passing through. And so primarily it is an invitation to mankind, each and every one of us from every background, every culture and every age, to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, to receive his forgiveness for our mess-ups and to receive eternal life forevermore in heaven, which is what this wedding feast represents with God, with Jesus and with everybody else who believes. And it is the most important invitation a person will ever received. Can you think of the highest invitation you have ever received or ever could possibly received? You know, think of like a really nice wedding invitation from a friend or a loved one. I can think of a few. When I was 16, I left school, didn't quite know what I was going to do, and so I joined the Prince's Trust on a three-month sort of internship or course, and we went abseiling and rock climbing, and we served the community, and I worked as an ambulance helper in an ambulance station in Llanelli, and so we were called out to emergencies and things like that, and it was an amazing three months of sort of, um, you know, being exposed to the wider world and its possibilities. And at the end of the Prince's Trust, I was personally invited to meet Prince Charles. He was coming to Llanelli to meet the team and it was so exciting and this invitation was such a special invitation and it was really, really exciting. And during the same year on the back of this, I was involved in some charity work in Llanelli and I received an invitation to go to the Mayor's Ball. And so I was picked up in a big stretch limousine with the Mayor and his wife, the Mayoress, had to get a new frock and off we went to the Mayor's ball and so some of these invitations I have received are really really special but can you imagine receiving an invitation from say the queen to go to her birthday party or to attend the wedding of the future king Charles and Kate not Charles and Kate Wills and Kate just a few years ago on receiving that invitation you wouldn't say oh I'm working that day or sorry I've got a dental appointment or I'm really busy that day or I'm on holiday you would not do that you would book it off, you would book annual leave, you would be there, you would move things around, you would change your rotor. If you were on Sunday school, you would make sure you swapped with somebody, you would make sure you would be there. This invitation, how special, you wouldn't want to miss it. But how much more important is the privilege of being invited to know and meet God, the creator of the universe, and to receive Jesus, his son, the amazing, awesome, perfect person of the Trinity, to know that you're destined destiny lies in heaven. How much more precious is that and how much more important is it? And yet we see people's responses in this parable. It says they ignored the invitation. Some were too busy. They went about their business. They went off and did their thing and they had more important things to attend to. And when we consider some of these things in the parable, doesn't that sound a little bit like people today? Oh, that God stuff, I'll think about that when I'm older. Or 
Jesus, what difference does he make in my life if I know him or not? Or church, Christianity, what relevance has that got to do with my life here and now? Well, actually, it makes a big difference because it's the difference of where you're going to spend your eternity. Is it going to be with God and Jesus and all of the other people who believe in him in heaven forever? Or is it going to be, as the verse refers to, without God for eternity in darkness? And so the invitation God gives us is paramount. And so for those of us who have responded, well done, it's absolutely amazing. And for those of us who have not yet responded, don't leave it too late. Get your RSVP in ASAP. Because none of us know, do we not, how long we've got. Uh, a a neighbour of ours uh, had a shock uh, just a couple of weeks ago. His nephew, who was in his early 50s, had passed away very suddenly. He'd come home from work, had a good day, didn't have any sort of pre-existing medical conditions that he was aware of, went to his sister's house, walked through the door, sat in the chair. His sister went to the kitchen, flicked the kettle on to make a cup of tea, and when she came back in the room, he had passed away in the chair. In a split second, none of us know when our hour comes. And so it's a really important invitation to consider. And so for those of us who have responded, let's continue to get the invites out to others, as we, in a sense, are now his messengers also. Let's continue to live with other people on our mind and continue to live before people through our words and our deeds um, and continue living a life that follows and serves Jesus. And so the invitations are out, and as Adam said last week, we are currently living under the grace and mercy and love of God. where he wants each and every one of us to come to know him and accept Jesus, his son, into our lives. He wants everyone to come to the wedding feast. He wants heaven full with you there. Okay, it is a heavy parable, but you were with me so far? I'll just flip that onto the, the hand if it comes up. Lovely. So, number two, why does Jesus give the illustration of a wedding? Well, in the Bible and in scripture, we often hear of weddings and banquets and feasts, which kind of refer to heaven or eternity or the kingdom of God. And often, God is kind of portrayed as a king, and Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom, and the church is often portrayed as the bride. And so there are a number of historical and cultural comparisons from then and now. And so why so many invitations? Well, it's a little bit like today. We would send out, if somebody was getting married, like a save the date invitation. This would sort of say, save the date, so make sure that you've got the date in your diary, as brides and grooms sometimes these days have to plan and book their wedding 18 months, two years in advance. For those recently married or about to be married, you know all about this. You've got to book your venue, book your church, book your flowers, book your cake, buy the dress, get your alterations done, make sure everybody can attend. And so we kind of throw this invitation out early on, save the date. And then a couple of months before the wedding, the official invitations go out, and that's kind of how we would do it now. But in this story, the second, um, there were two invitations that were given. The first, ask the guests to come, to attend, and the second, announce that everything was ready. And in this story, the king invites people three times, and up to three times, some people completely reject the invitation. 
And this shows me the grace of God and the love and the kindness that he really, really, really wants us to be there. He wants us to come to him. And many people say that before they actually become a Christian or make a decision to follow Jesus, that there were numerous opportunities and numerous um, people and invitations that came their way to spiritual things. Maybe somebody had been invited to Alpha, had a conversation with somebody in work about God and church and faith. Maybe somebody in their family had prayed for them and had lots of conversations with them. And so some people get lots of invitations to kind of come to know God, find out who Jesus is, receive his gift that he so wonderfully gave us um, of eternal life and forgiveness. And so but sometimes people might just get one invitation. And so take that invitation as like, you know, seriously as possible. But as much as God wants everyone to be in his family, he gives us free will. And so ultimately, it is up to us to choose. Do I choose life with Jesus or do I choose life and reject Jesus and live without him? And secondly, what's the deal with the wedding clothes or the wedding garments? This kind of, when you read it, sounds really unfair and really harsh. But we're going to quickly look at some of the sort of context of it and the history that went into Middle Eastern weddings during that time, especially those of royalty. And so secondly, let's deal with that. So today, guests will wear their own wedding clothes. You don't give your guests, right, this is what you're going to wear to my wedding. It'd be much easier if you did. <laughs> Save a lot of money as well. <laughs> but anyway, we kind of wear whatever we want. And we go out and we buy the hat and we buy the frock and the shoes and the suits and the new tie and the corsage and everything. And we turn up to the wedding and everybody looks differently. So for us, sometimes the bridal party will purchase the bridesmaid's clothes and purchase the suits to hire for the, the, the men in the party. So for us, we hired suits for the brothers and the ushers and the best man and the fathers. But we had to hire the page boy suit for Adam because at the time we were both so young and we were so small, we had to have loads of alterations done. And so... Nothing fitted, even the hat, remember? He got lost under the hat, the top hat. <laughs> okay, sorry. So anyway, so, t- so traditionally, the bride's party would sort of buy or hire the clothes for certain members of the bridal party. But then it was traditional, especially in a royal sort of setting, that the king would supply the wedding clothes or garments for the guests to come to the wedding. And the custom in those days was for the one hosting the feast, and in this case the king, to provide wedding garments for his guests. They would have been simple, nondescript robes, possibly white, and all attendees would wear these. And it's a good idea in some ways, because then, in some way, rank or position or stature in society was covered and everyone could mingle as equals. Isn't that a good idea? Yeah. So if you just come from the farm or you just come from, you know, milking the cows or whatever and you did, you know, you couldn't, you know, you maybe didn't have time to get a posh outfit or you were like a really high nobleman or something like that, then everybody would be seen as equal. And I think that's quite a good idea. So in the context of that, this is how we can see what these garments were for. But when the king entered the wedding hall, he noticed that one guest wasn't wearing a wedding garment in verse 12. And he says, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment, even though one would have been provided for him? And scholars suggest that this would have been extremely 
disrespectful towards the king and his son, indicating that he was without excuse and he didn't lack a wedding garment, but he didn't wear it on purpose, defiantly refusing to put it on. And so this is why the king acts so swiftly and harshly, bind him hand and foot and take him away. His judgment is not against the man's lack of a wedding garment, but that he did not intend to wear it. In some ways, it shows the rebellion of the man. He wanted to be at the wedding feast, but he did not want to follow the king's instructions or his customs. He wanted to do things his way, which reveals his inner rebellion against the king and his son. And so he was executed as a rebel. And so this shows us that in a nutshell, we cannot get into the kingdom of God, heaven, eternity, um, through our own merits. And no matter how good a person we think we are, at the end of the day, there is only one way in, and that is in John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, be thrown out into the darkness, but have eternal life. There, come into the wedding feast be a welcomed guest. And so the wedding clothes picture the righteousness needed to enter God's kingdom. Jesus has provided us with these clothes of righteousness in a sense for everyone, but each person must choose to put them on in order to enter the king's banquet or eternal life, which is what the story is implying. And it's a little bit like we come as our fallen human state to God with our sort of rags, you know. We are kind of, let me just illustrate this quickly. Here we are, fallen human beings, and we are sort of coming to God with all the things we do wrong, our mess-ups, and uh, here we are. We can't do nothing on our own merit, no matter how good we are or much we try and do good things and all of this kind of thing we can't get in because it's not about us and this sort of verse just illustrates really the sort of righteousness and the holiness and the the work that Jesus has done for us and he puts on us these robes of righteousness which represents Jesus's work on the cross that when we come to him he removes our old filthy rags and he robes us with his righteousness because it's his work it's his love it's Jesus's work on the cross that gets us into eternity but when we choose and so that's just a quick little illustration of how it is when we come to that decision to follow Jesus And so when we are born again, as the Bible says, or we come into that new life and know Jesus and we say sorry for the things that we've done wrong and we receive him into our life and we commit to follow him, we are given in a sense like a new garment, so to speak, and that identifies us with Jesus. And so there is an open invitation for each and every one of us, but are we ready? And in Isaiah 61 verse 10, there's a verse again that talks about robes and sort of God's uh, provision for us. I'll just bring that up if we can. Lovely, thank you. And it's Isaiah 61:10. It says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom in his wedding suit or a bride in her jewels. 
And there's another one in Zechariah, which we'll bring up. But as we know, there were prophets, which were God's special messengers, whose primary task it was to proclaim God's word, pointing out sin and its consequences, and calling the people to repentance and obedience to God. And as we know, as we read through the Old Testament, it's filled of stories and accounts where they sort of you know, disobeyed God, and they went off worshipping idols, and they did their own thing. And uh, when we think of Elijah and Elisha and sort of Jeremiah and many more prophets that came with God's message faithfully despite rejection and ridicule and sometimes persecution, um, this guy, Zachariah, um, was a prophet and he kind of came, well, just before Jesus really, but some of these things were written 500 years before, which is amazing because he has this like spectacular apocalyptic vision of like the future. And this is one of the verses that we read, but here we really see how he was proclaiming God's message to the people of the things to come. And it says this, Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. And so the angel said to the others, Jeshua was the high priest of Israel. He was the high priest of the remnant of Israel that had returned to Judah to rebuild the city and sort of start up Jerusalem. And it says, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Jeshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins. And now I am giving you these fine new clothes. And so this, in a sense, is like prophetic of like what Jesus was going to do. He was like preparing the people. And Zachariah's vision graphically portrays how we receive God's mercy. We do nothing ourselves. God removes our filthy clothes, sin, what the Bible calls all the stuff that we do wrong. And then he provides us with fine new clothes. Jesus is the righteousness and holiness of God. And all we need to do is to turn away from the things that we do wrong, admit and own up and say sorry and ask for his forgiveness and invite him into our lives and follow him and give him our lives. And when the enemy sometimes, when we've done that, can really get in and remind us, can't he, of our you know, fallenness and the things that we did. And he can make us feel really dirty again and unworthy. But remember that the clean clothes of Jesus and the work of the cross enables you to draw near to God. And in Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, an exchange takes place. He takes our sin and makes us right with God. All our wrongdoings were laid on Jesus at his crucifixion. His righteousness is given to us on our decision to follow him. And this is the greatest gift. This is the greatest invitation, something of immeasurable worth. How grateful we should be to receive this kindness. And this week, as I was studying this, and as a little girl, I used to read the parables and be taught them in Sunday school, and you kind of take them for face value. But until you actually study it and understand the context and realize just the amazingness of God and his love and his care and his mercy and the fact that he wants us mere humans to be in heaven for eternity with him, I was on my knees weeping and just thanking God for the great invitation and gift that he's given me. I am so privileged that as a nine-year-old girl, somebody explained what all this means, and I was able to respond. And so I just encourage us, for those of us who may not have 
responded yet. You know, really take this seriously. And for those people you know and love and rub shoulders with every day, look and pray and ask for those opportunities through word and deed to be able to communicate this message to them as well. It really does make me very grateful. And so, finally, to wrap it all up, what is this feast representative of? It's representing heaven. And heaven, everybody wants to know heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. And in recent polls, almost 80% of people said that they believe in a place called heaven. And that's really encouraging, really, isn't it? Because it shows that people know and believe that there is something more to this life than just, you know all the pain and suffering that we go through. We know that there is something more than just being born, living, working hard, and then having your four score years and 10 or whatever it is, if you're fortunate enough, and then au revoir world. You know, there is more, there is more, there is more. And the only things that we can know for certain about heaven are the things that is revealed in the Bible. Everything else is just hearsay and speculation. And so just very quickly and just very briefly, what does the Bible tell us about heaven? Well, it tells us everything we need to know. Jesus says it is a real place. It is not some mystical, magical, dream-like state. In John 14, 1 to 3, it says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God that Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be there with me where I am. And so twice in three verses, Jesus calls heaven a place, a real place with real people in. And that's the place we've got to look forward to. And he also refers to it as paradise. In Luke, it says, Jesus replied to the man on the cross next to him who was a criminal, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so as the thief on the cross next to Jesus was about to die, he turned to Jesus for forgiveness and he accepted him. And really, this shows that it's never too late to turn to God. It's never too late. Jesus had mercy on this criminal who decided to believe in him at the closing moments of his life. And I can remember having a couple of experiences with with elderly relatives over the years. Over the years, we would have had many conversations about faith and some of their responses would have been quite hostile with a sort of um, atheistic viewpoint and uh, response to my sort of questions and invites. But on their deathbed experiences, they changed. They had a change of heart. And when a person knows that all they've got left is like a few moments on this planet, and then they enter in a state of, oh, I'm not quite sure, they change. And I can remember visiting my uncle in hospital and uh, you know, explaining again to him and asking him if he'd like to receive Jesus. And he said, yes, I couldn't believe it. This man has been so antagonistic and anti-God and anti-church and why this happened and why that happened. And yet in those final moments of his life, he responded and chose Jesus. And it was so wonderful. And then just last year, I remember going to visit a friend in Spain, a very dear friend, family friend in his 80s, who was a sort of non-practicing Catholic and had interesting views and again was very anti-Jesus and things like that and Gemma helped me sort of 
um, make a prayer in Spanish because she used her Spanish skills to lead a man to the Lord. Well done, Gemma. And so I was able to go to Spain because he didn't speak a word of English and I was able to pray with him in his dying moments in that little nursing home and uh, you know, lead him to the Lord in prayer. And what a change of heart takes place. It's never too late. It's never too late. But also, we don't know how long we've got. And so Jesus has mercy And Jesus is extending that invitation to us, even up to our closing moments of life on earth. Heaven will be better than we can imagine. In Revelation, we read about John, who had like these visions of heaven and the things to come. And in verse, Revelation 22, verse 8, he says, I, John, am the one who saw and heard all of these things. And when I saw and heard these things, I fell down to worship So when the Apostle John was given a glimpse of heaven, he fell down to worship. And the Bible frequently describes heaven as a place from which everything negative will be banished. God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more fear. It will be filled with worship, filled with peace and joy and love. Heaven will be even better than we can imagine. What a gift, what an invitation and what a privilege. The best thing is going to be meeting Jesus face to face. And David Jeremiah said this, heaven is not a figment of imagination. It is not a feeling or an emotion. It is not the beautiful isle of somewhere. It is a prepared place for a prepared people. Are you prepared? Am I prepared? Have you accepted that invitation? That is what this parable is about. God's love and mercy and grace and his invitation that nobody should go to a lost eternity but to spend it there with him. Why don't we close our eyes? Jesus, thank you so much for the work of your cross that you have made a way for each and every one of us to know you here and to have that promise of heaven forever with you where we will meet you face to face. I thank you, Jesus, that what you have prepared for each and every one of us who believe in you is going to be better than we can imagine. And we're going to sing this last song, and I just want to encourage you that if you have, like, never responded to the invitation of Jesus to know all the things you've done wrong forgiven and to enter into a relationship with him, I just encourage you now in this song just to say sorry for those things and to accept Jesus into your life as God's son and to give your life to him, to follow him, and to let him lead you into whatever it is that he leads you into. Those gifts, those wonderful things you have in your life, God has given you those things. Use them for his kingdom. Amen.